Now we're going to read from God's Word. This morning we're in Genesis, Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, So he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? And where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she who called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The word of the Lord. Our passage today shows that there's a God and God hears the oppressed. God hears the cries of those who are being treated harshly. He hears. Harshness is having the loudest word on earth, but in heaven God is hearing the cries of those who are treated harshly. The text focuses on someone who is being treated harshly. And who is that? It's not Abram, it's not Sarai, 
It's Hagar. And think about Hagar here. We're given a number of things to consider about Hagar. Hagar is a single woman. She may have even been a black woman. Scholars aren't sure about the ethnic composition of ancient Egypt, but it says more than once here, twice, Hagar was Egyptian. And not only was she single, not only was she from Egypt, Hagar was impregnated by her master. The master impregnated her. And then she was harshly treated until she had to run away. She's a woman, and she was a woman living in a patriarchal society. And so different values, different rights, different limitations. She was also a foreigner. She was an immigrant. She was an Egyptian among other people, an, an ethnic minority. She was also financially and structurally disadvantaged. She was a maidservant under the power of Sarai and Abram. And then she also found herself enmeshed in this, I don't know how else you could describe it. It was, it was an unhealthy sexual dynamic going on in that household between Abram and Sarai. That's her situation. That's what Hagar found herself living in. She was a poor minority woman on the bottom of the power dynamic. And what happened to her here was that people used her and then they discarded her. They abused her and then they abandoned her. The question is something like this for us. Are you a woman? Are you a woman who's being treated harshly? Are you an immigrant? And you've found harsh treatment. Are you a minority? Whatever, whatever you are, are you being treated harshly? Are you on the weaker side of a power dynamic, maybe in the military, in your office, in society, or even in your own family? God sees and hears those who are being treated harshly. The text shows us three things. First thing, we see that pride and envy lead to abuse. Pride and envy can lead to abuse. This is in verses 1 through 6. And, and what we have here, it's, it is an unpleasant account. It's also a very unflattering account. Genesis is largely about Abraham and Sarah. But what we have here is something that's much more about Hagar and the Lord. And the context is this. It is largely the story of, of Abram and the people of God. And, and what you, you're hearing over and over in these chapters and in, in the chapters to come is that God has twice promised Abram that he will have descendants. He will have true sons. But he is in his 80s. There is nothing. No children no daughters, no sons. And it seems like the Lord is being exceedingly slow in this promise to bring a son. And, and the question that keeps coming up and will keep coming up is, what do you do when the Lord delays? What does Abram do? What does Sarai do when the Lord delays? And I'm not talking about a delay of five weeks until the check comes or the application clears. We're talking about years. We're talking about decades that the Lord has delayed. Well, what do you do? What we see here is Sarai starts just stewing and the, 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 the delay of the Lord. And then she starts asking questions like this. Well, maybe the problem is me. Sarai is asking, maybe I am the problem. She says, I have not born a son. And so with her, the kind of common human questions would, would be ones that circle around shame. Maybe I'm not enough. Maybe I'm de detect defective. Maybe there would have been circling in her even self-loathing. She brings the focus on, I haven't had a child yet. Maybe the problem is me. And so in that, 
state of mind she offers Hagar. She offers her maidservant. Verse 2, she says, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Maybe we've been waiting all these years and I'm the problem. I'm the one who can't have children. And so she comes with this solution. And she comes up with uh, an ugly but socially acceptable option. It's ugly, but it is socially acceptable in that time. She says, why don't we take my maidservant, Hagar, and why don't we promote her into becoming a concubine? A concubine. That would have been legally acceptable. That would have been culturally acceptable. What is a concubine? A concubine, you could, you could, you could say in some ways it's, it was like making her to be a second-tier wife, but she really wasn't a wife, so that's not even the best word. But we'll just use that word, second-tier wife, concubine. But she was not a true wife. She wasn't a true wife. You, you see even here that, that Sarai, as this plays out, and, and she becomes a second-tier wife and a second-tier mother, she's like, she's, she's getting out of her place. She's starting to act like she's a true wife. This practice of, of concubines This was never endorsed by scripture. It's never endorsed by it. It's tolerated by scripture. It's regulated, but it's never endorsed. Monogamy is clearly taught in the Bible, beginning to end, Genesis 1 and 2, all the way through Genesis, Ephesians 5. But Sarai proposes this arrangement to make Hagar into a concubine, and she she proposes it, and she offers some theological rationalization for taking this, this step. She says, the Lord has restrained me. Because the Lord hasn't brought the child, maybe what the Lord's trying to tell us is we should make Hagar into a concubine. Now, what she's proposing is culturally acceptable, but what we see is this. It's culturally acceptable, but it is morally reprehensible. It's morally repulsive. She says, take this woman who is not your wife and we will not treat her as a full wife. Sleep with my maidservant, and the child will be mine. So you already can see here, this is not like he's taking on even another wife. Verse 2, sleep with Hagar, and Hagar's child will be my child, Sarai says. And Abram consents. Abram says, okay, let's do this. Now, let's just give a little more attention to the pressures that are on Sarai. For her in that culture, to be without a son... To be without a child, that's disaster for the family name. That would also bring not only trouble for the name of the family, that would bring shame on her as a woman, as a wife. It would, it would mean that she had failed. And so for her to produce sons, if she could produce a son, somehow that would be for her honor and glory for her family, and that would be honor and glory for her as a woman, as a wife, as a mother. And, and she's got this promise that God has repeated God's promised a literal and a biological son to Abram. And so she's thinking, well, if I can't have babies, maybe in this cultural arrangement, my maidservant can have a baby and it will be my baby. Maybe that's what God has in mind in giving Abram a biological son. What we see here with this kind of pressure, this kind of rationalization, we see this. We see that impatience. When you're impatient, when we become impatient with God, impatience leads to independence from God. When we're impatient with God, it leads to becoming independent from him. When we weary of waiting on the Lord, we start to wander from the Lord. When we weary of waiting, we wander. I'll give you an example of this. You could, you could be a person 
who is in this very common situation. You might be saying to yourself, I have not had a date in months. I have not had a date in years. I've been looking, I've been trying, I've been waiting, and I have not had a date in a very long time. Maybe, and you're a believer, you're a Christian, you profess to follow Christ, you want to follow him. And so maybe you start thinking, maybe I need to, maybe I need to broaden Broaden the dating search parameters. Maybe I need to drop some of the things that I have been holding as requirements, limitations, qualifications for who I will date. Maybe I need to just drop the requirement that the person I date shares my Christian faith. Long ago, I, I had a friend, no one, no one here, another place, I had a friend. She was single, she was attractive, she was very sincere in her faith, but she was deeply lonely. We lived in a large, large metro area, and she just couldn't find nobody. She, she would attend all of the single meets in the church's very large, in the, in the city's very large church. She, she was trying to find someone, she couldn't find anyone, and so she would spend her evenings miserable, lonely. She would watch romance films, but she was alone. It just made her more unhappy, and she was tired of waiting. And so she started to date a nice guy that she had met. It was in a dance class. He was very nice. He was respectable, but he wasn't a believer. She knew he wasn't a believer. And friends would ask her, what are you doing? What are you doing? And she she would say, I know I shouldn't. I know I shouldn't be doing this but I am so lonely. When we weary of waiting, we start to wander. And and for you, maybe it has nothing to do with dating. Maybe it's you've got financial pressures and they're so heavy that it's starting to lead you into the path of creative accounting to get some of the pressure off. Or maybe it's ministry pressures. You're, you're, You're serving, you're trying to do ministry, but the pressures are leading you to start to compromise some of your practices, in order to just get some relief, get some fruit in this. This passage talks about some of the pressures that come with childlessness. I I have very great respect for couples who have unwanted childlessness. There are deeply, deeply complex and confusing decisions that you may face about how God's word applies to all of these kind of edge case scenarios of fertility options. It's very complicated. There are all kinds of pressures to compromise. The question for everyone here is this. Where are you being pressured today? Where are you being pressured today by God's delay? Is God delaying? How is that pressuring you? What area of your life? Well, what we see here with with Abram and Sarai is they end up starting to have to deal with some pride and some envy. In their situation, pride and envy start coming to the forefront. Abram consents. He, he, he takes Hagar and he takes her as this concubine, as, as a concubine wife. He sleeps with her and he impregnates her. He's 86 years old and this is what he does. Now the result, what's the result of that? There's just, there's regret and then there's recrimination. Verse four, what we find in this is Hagar becomes pregnant and, and she starts to become a little haughty. Verse, verse 4 says that when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress, Sarai, became despised in her eyes. She thought she couldn't, the, the master's wife couldn't get pregnant after all these years. 
no problem on my part, I'm pregnant. And she started to, that whole honor that was surrounded pregnancy in that culture, she started to rise. She liked it. She became a little haughty. But then we see that Sarai, in this account, what is she doing to this woman, Hagar? What does she do? She uses her. She's entirely just using her. There's some pride there that would allow her to use another woman that way. And not only do we see pride, we see envy. She uses Hagar, and then when Hagar gets pregnant, Sarai despises Hagar. And that's born out of envy. The pride enables Sarai to use another woman. The envy enables her to despise another woman. Pride, pride values self over others. Pride values my well-being over your well-being. And if pride is in the seat, you will be able to rationalize, you will be able to rationalize imposing on other people, exploiting other people, you will be able to rationalize even misusing and abusing other people. And that, that's what's going on in Sarai's heart, and you see the fruit of it here. When, when Hagar is pregnant and starts to rise, verse 5, Sarai says, this is all wrong. This is all wrong. May my wrong be upon you. She, Sarai gets this child. She says, if she, if she gets pregnant, I'll have a child. And so that's what happens. She's, she's pregnant. There's going to be a child. She finds, Sarai finds, I've gotten a child, but I've lost respect. And that's intolerable. I got the child that we planned for. But now I've lost respect. I cannot stand her. I will not have this. And so you see her fury, Sarai's fury. Her pride has been wounded. She's not, she got the child that she wanted. And she's so angry and feels so wronged by it. Her pride is wounded. She will not have this woman looking down on her. Verse 5. She was despised in the eyes of Hagar. There's envy, though. There's envy because at a human level, Sarai knows the truth. This is Hagar's child. You can't just, by name, because you're the mistress, you're the the master's wife, you can't just say, she birthed her, she was impregnated and conceived her, but it's my child. You can't do, that's just a fiction. That's a fiction. And so she has envy. Sarai wants the real honor of being the mother of the child. She wants Hagar kept down. She wants Hagar to stay in her place. That's her pride. And then the envy follows. Now here's here's a question for you. It's a question for all of us. You can ask yourself, how do you feel? How do you feel when someone lower than you, maybe it's your son, maybe it's your daughter, how do you feel when they they hit their adulthood, they enter their career, and they they begin to out-earn you? They start to surpass you. They move higher than you ever moved. They have more praise and recognition than you ever had. They actually are more gifted than you are. They make more money than you do. How, how do you feel? They have a family that's doing better than yours. How, how, do you, how do you do when your trainee, the person that you brought into the organization, maybe you recruited them, and you trained them, you made a way for them, and they start to out-promote you. They start surpassing you. How do you do with that? Where's the envy? Is there pride? Well, let's look at this also, what we see here. We also see this. We see that Sarai teaches us to examine our own ruling desires. Sarai is teaching us, look at your own heart. Look at what your ruling desires are. Because when we have a ruling desire, and it's not the Lord, 
when we, take, we start to take the way that seems right in our own eyes, we start to, to exercise this independence from God, and when we do that, if you're a believer, inevitably regret will follow. When we go in the way that seems right in our own eyes, it will not work out. The Lord won't let it work out. Galatians 6, 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And in this example that we have, we have Sarai promoting this God-less plan, and we find Sarai reaping the bitter fruit of her plan. Commentators observe there are, there are very striking similarities between what Sarai proposes to her husband and does and what Eve in the garden proposed to her husband and what he does. In Eden, Adam listened to his wife. The woman took the fruit and gave to her husband and then it doesn't work out and blame shifting is what comes out. Here with Abram, same kind of language. He heeded the voice of his wife. He took Hagar who was given to him by his wife and then blame shifting, regret. Do you want a clue? And you're looking at your own life, you're looking at your own plan and something is now not working out. If you want a clue about whether you were taking a righteous step, whether you were taking an obedient step, ask yourself this, am I now blame shifting in the outcome, in the outworking? Because if it had been good, if the plan had been of the Lord, if it had been good, you wouldn't be blame shifting, you'd be taking responsibility. Even if it wasn't working out, you'd be taking responsibility because it would have been a good way, a righteous way, a way pleasing to the Lord. But she's blame shifting. Verse five, Sarai says, my wrong be upon you, Abram. My trouble be upon you, Abram. So Sarai teaches all of us to examine our own ruling desires. And, and you kids, you're, you maybe you're listening to this, you're taking notes, and you're like, examine our ruling desires. What is a ruling desire? The word in, in the New Testament is uh, sometimes called lusts, epithumia. It, it's just talking about a desire that is so strong, it's driving you. It's ruling you. It's a, it's a desire for something. It might be something wrong. You want money so much, you're going you're gonna to do whatever it takes to get it. It might be a desire for something right. I just want to have a little peace. I just want a little peace so much I'm going to yell at my kids until they shut up and it is quiet. Okay, it's, it's a ruling desire. It can be for something good, peace, for something wrong, ill-gotten gain. But it's something that we want so much that we want it more than God and we're willing to depart from God's ways to get it. In Sarai's case, she wants her ruling desires. She wants a child. And she wants certainty. She is uncomfortable with ambiguity. How is the child going to come? Will it be through Abram, through a woman? Will it be from Abram through me? She has discomfort with ambiguity. She cannot tolerate anymore. She's, she's done with all this uncertainty. How long is, is her demand? So she wants honor. She wants immediacy. You know, it's not inherently bad to want honor. It's not bad to want honor. That's a healthy desire. She wants immediacy. That's not bad either. To see something that's aching, to have it stop aching, that's not bad. But when that becomes a ruling desire, she starts to pursue a path apart from the precepts of the Lord. Here's some symptoms that you can ask 
Are they present for me? Has something become a ruling desire for me? One symptom is it's not working out. You've got a ruling desire, it's not working out, and so there's blame shifting. Is there blame shifting? Are you shifting the blame when plans fail, when things go sour? You chose this path, it isn't working out, and now you're just starting to blame someone else or some, something else. Is there blame shifting? Is there envy with, with the denial of what you wanted or the reception of what you wanted? Do you find that you, you're envious? Resentment. When the other person has some piece of what you wanted, some credit for what you were striving for. She wanted admiration. She wanted a child. She got one of the two. Blame shifting, envy, and then is there in the ethos of how it's working out, is there anger and hatred? Verse 6, there is, there is anger and hatred. Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, so harshly that Hagar fled. The, the, um, the CSB translates the verse this way. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. And so you can ask, are those things present in me and how I'm responding to receiving what I wanted so badly or to having what I wanted so badly still denied, still kept at arm's length? What are your, what are your ruling desires? Another way to ask it is this. You can ask it this way from a different angle. Are you in conflict with anyone right now? Just because you're in conflict with someone doesn't mean you've got a, a, a wrong ruling desire, but it's, it's a helpful question. Are you in conflict with anyone right now? Conflict can be a clue. James 4, 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members, your ruling desires? You lust, you have ruling desires, and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. Is there conflict? It can be a clue that there's a ruling desire that's not the Lord. What desires rule you? What are the ruling desires behind your quarrels? You can invert the question. Is someone treating you harshly? Are you receiving harsh treatment from someone else? You can, you can turn the question around. What desire? What desire rules them so much that they're willing to hurt other people, that they're willing to hurt you? Now, we come to verses 7 through 12, and what we see here is that God sees and hears those who are treated harshly. God sees. He hears it. Hagar is abused and she runs away. And, and this is her situation. She is pregnant. She is homeless. She's alone in the wilderness. And she's just sitting by a spring. And it seems like she is on her way to Egypt. She, she's by the way of Shur. And, and, and it seems like maybe she's heading back to her birth home, back to her people. Now, five things very rapidly that we see here. First of all, you see in verse 7, the Lord comes to her. God comes to those who are treated harshly. Verse 7, and this is repeated three times, the angel of the Lord comes to her. The angel of the Lord says to her. The angel of the Lord speaks to her. The angel of the Lord, that means she is receiving in, in, this, in her flight from harsh treatment, she gets direct contact with God. Verse 7, he comes to where she is. And, and not only does he come and just, he's not just standing there as a silent observer, he engages her. Verse 8, he asks her those two questions. He engages with her. 
Where have you come from? And where are you going? Where have you come from? Where are you headed? He, he engages her. Prior to this, the Lord had come to Abram. And that was always significant when the Lord came to Abram. Here, the Lord comes to Hagar, the misused woman. He comes to the mistreated woman. The question for you is, has someone hurt you? Has someone treated you harshly? And are you scared and running? You can invite the Lord to come to you. You can expect the Lord to come to you. Psalm 18, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him, even to his ears. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. In the depths of her suffering, Hagar has one of the most meaningful and most personal dealings with the Lord. And it wouldn't be her last one. Do they treat you lousy? Do they treat you lousy at home? Do they treat you lousy at work? Look for the Lord to come to you. Now secondly, we see this. The Lord also sees her. Verse 13. She says to God, You are the God who sees. You are the God who sees me, she says. And that, that's in line with other places in, in the word. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. When her mistress accused her, and when her mistress abused her, God saw that. God saw that. Is someone, is someone accusing you? Is someone bringing all these accusations against you, criticizing you harshly? Is someone abusing you? God sees. When people accuse you wrongly and you are so flustered, you're standing there, there's, it's just flying at you, and you're so flustered, you don't even know what to think, you don't even know what to say. God sees that. God sees that. Hagar in that house with Abram and Sarah and all the dysfunction that was working out there, Hagar felt outnumbered in that house. She felt all alone and she felt unseen. But God saw. God saw. Are you suffering at the hand of another? Have you suffered at the hand of another? God saw all that. God sees you. Are you suffering in the house of another person? God sees that. God sees you. The third thing we see is this. We see that the Lord hears Hagar. That's in verse 11. The Lord hears those who are treated harshly. He says to her, you are with a child. You're pregnant. I see that. And you shall call his name Ishmael. The meaning of Ishmael means God hears. God hears. Because the Lord has heard your affliction. That's part of God's nature. When there is abuse, when there's mistreatment, when there's injustice, that catches God's ear. And think about later, later when, when it's Israel who's being treated harshly as slaves in Egypt. Exodus 3, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And think about that. God is saying, I know your sorrows. 
Are you being treated harshly by your spouse, by your boss? And no one knows. God knows. God knows your sorrows. For every harsh word that was said to you, for every harsh hand that was dealt to you, for every tear you cried in the bathroom with the door closed, the shock, the betrayal of it, God knows your sorrows. He hears your prayers. You don't even know what to pray. You just groan. He hears your groans. Now, just as an aside here, we have here just, it's another pebble dropped in this well that's full of these pebbles that in the Bible call for compassion for those who are marginalized. It's all over the Bible. It's very striking that you've got this whole chapter here, this whole account. It didn't have to be here. It's not about Abram and Sarai receiving mistreatment. It's about Hagar, this woman, this minority woman who's an immigrant, who's disadvantaged. It's highlighting the values of God's kingdom. Think about places like this. Deuteronomy 10, 18. The Lord administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, the immigrant, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19, 34. The stranger, the immigrant, who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you and you shall love him as yourself for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Exodus 22, 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger, an immigrant, nor oppress him for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Who are the marginalized today, in our place, in our time? Who are they? Who are the minorities? Who are the weak? Who are the foreigners? Who are the immigrants? Who are they? Who is abused and treated harshly? Fourth, the Lord blesses her. This is what we see, verse 10. The Lord blesses her. The Lord blesses a pregnant minority woman who's being treated harshly. She has a child, and the child, the son, verse 11, is going to become not only her living son, he's going to become an entire people. Verse 10, the Lord is going to multiply Hagar's descendants exceedingly so that you couldn't even count them. There'll be so many of them. He's going to be feisty. He's going to be nomadic. He's going to always be opposed, but he will be great in number, verse 12. So consider this. She is alone. She's alone in the wilderness, and she's pregnant. And God is telling her, your son, this son that you're carrying right now, he's going to fill the wilderness. This empty place that you're in, he's going to fill the wilderness with his people. And in this promise of God, you have this strange thing. The theology of God's covenants, it's strange. It's not the way we tend to think. But what he's doing here is, Hagar is implicitly, by the Lord, being tied into the Abrahamic covenant. Think of what he is promising her right here. He's promising her numerous, multitude descendants, just like with Abram. He's promising her that those who rise up against her son's sons, they will not prevail. He's going to prevail against opposition. The same promise that was given to Abram. And so the Lord blesses her. The Lord blesses those who are treated harshly. Fifthly, we see this. And the Lord sends her back. That's in verse 9. He says to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Now, this is not a blanket call 
to return to the place of abuse. It's not. Think of other examples. David. David did not and should not have returned to the abuse at the hands of King Saul. So this is not a blanket call to return to a place of abuse. Let's be concrete. Should abused women flee? Should they make distance? Yes, absolutely. Should a woman return to places of abuse? No. But sometimes, sometimes, God may send a person back to a place of harsh treatment for a time. Sometimes. And it has to be God doing the talking. Because eventually, Hagar does go back, but she's eventually cast out. It's just for a time. There's a comfort in this. If God sends you back to the hard place, you are not going back alone. You are going back. You're returning with his attention and with his compassion and with his protection. Let me give you an illustration story about two different women. The first woman, no, I'm not talking about anyone here. The first woman was a, a woman who was very gifted, very kind, very cheerful, very sweet, and she loved the Lord. She got married to a man who was professionally successful, professionally respected and prosperous, but he had a secret drug addiction. And marriage with her turned into a nightmare. He manipulated her. He messed with her mind. At one point, he even got her addicted to psychotropic drugs. He put her on these things that she couldn't get off of, and he isolated her. He kept her from contact with everyone that she used to know and everyone that used to care for her. He would emotionally harangue her. Hours and hours, five hours, seven hours through the night, would not let her sleep, kept demanding conversation, kept demanding responses and answers and agreement from her. He threatened her. He threatened her. She was losing her mind, and she was losing her life. Her health was collapsing but she escaped. It took her four attempts. She finally escaped for good. But through that time, when she was so mixed up and so confused about, am I supposed to stay? It, wouldn't that be the godly thing to do? She prayed. She cried out to the Lord. She was on her face weeping. She didn't know what to do. But what she said afterwards was, I cried to the Lord, and finally he delivered me. And she never went back after that. And that was right. I'll tell you another story of another woman. When she was a teenager, she was sexually abused, and the, the man who abused her impregnated her. And in that society, because she was the one who was impregnated, because she was the woman, she got harsh treatment. She got exiled to a wilderness island because she lived in a highly patriarchal Muslim society which always blamed it on the woman, even rape. In her prison on this wilderness island, the Lord came to her. She came to know Jesus. Jesus saved her and it was the greatest blessing of her life. And the Lord spoke to her and sent her back to the people who harshly treated her, sent her back to her people. You know who I'm talking about, Sister Miriam. That's her story. Sometimes God sends us back to harsh treatment, the boss, the teacher, the parent, whatever, sometimes. Let's close with this, how to endure, 
How do you endure harsh treatment, whether you're in it or whether the Lord sends you back? Verses 13 through 16. Harsh treatment is unbearable without the Lord. It is unbearable without the Lord. But knowing the Lord makes harsh treatment bearable. It may press you beyond what you ever imagined could happen, but it can make it bearable. Hagar could not take the cruelty of her mistress, and so she fled. But once she knew the Lord, she could go back. She could go back. She knew the Lord sees. She knew the Lord hears, and so she could go back. She begins on that day, verse 13, a relationship with the Lord. That's what she says. She says, I have met the Lord. I have met God. I can return if he tells me to. But harsh treatment is hard to bear. How can you endure that? How are you going to hold up under that? You've got to be, you've got to see Jesus in the gospel. Because not just Hagar, Jesus is the one who is treated harshly. Jesus is the one who is oppressed and abused. He is the one who received the harshest treatment. He received false accusations. He received shaming. He received beatings. He even was executed. And nobody, nobody heard his cries. They mocked his pain, even when he was nailed to the cross. They they said that to him. He saved others. He can't save himself. Men did not hear him. And even worse, God did not hear him. God himself did not hear him. That's what you hear in Psalm 22. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? God, why are you not hearing my groaning? This is the gospel. Jesus was unheard by God so that you can always have God's ear. Because Jesus bore the harshness of God for our sins, we receive the compassion and the blessing of God. Now, in many ways, the story that we have in Genesis is an ugly story. Why is it here? Maybe briefly as we close, just a few things to recognize. First of all, what we recognize in this this very unpleasant story, we recognize God's grace to dishonorable people. Abram and Sarai are, they're, they're they're dishonorable. This ugly story is set in the story of Abraham and Sarai and God's chosen people. They act sinfully, they act abusively, and yet God still selected them as people that he would save. God chooses chooses sinners. God's grace is to (coughs) sinners, dishonorable people. That means for you, if you sense today that you're dishonorable, that you've treated people poorly, your sin does not exclude you from God's grace. It also means this. You need to recognize that our sins can't derail God's goodness from still happening. God, God, will not be stopped just because you sinned. Hagar sinned some. Abram and Sarai sinned greatly, but Sarai's great sins did not prevent God from sending her eventually, her own true son. Sarai's sins, her great sins, did not prevent the fulfillment of all of God's big promises to Abram eventually. And that means for you, you may have sinned terribly. You may have sinned, and the consequences are horrendous. But your sins can't prevent God from blessing you in a substantial way. Yes, sin brings consequences. 
But as the song says, our sins are many. Though they are many, his mercies are more. And lastly, this. We can recognize that the sins of others against you, the sins of others against you, they also can't prevent God's goodness from breaking out on you. Even if others have treated you terribly, harshly, it can't stop God from doing you the greatest good. Abram and Sarai's great sins against Hagar did not prevent Hagar from coming to know God. Abram and Sarai's great sins against Hagar could not prevent God from blessing Hagar with a son and many sons who would prosper. The abusive people committed the greatest evil against Jesus and it resulted in the blessing for the salvation of the world, for the nations. Others may sin greatly against you. What's your posture going to be? How are you going to respond? Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let us pray. Lord, we, we acknowledge that Jesus overcame the evil that was done to him, and it resulted in our great good. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your grace to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would Give deliverance to those who are being treated harshly. Give hope and strength and even blessing. May they know you. May we know you. And Lord, for those who need to be called out of twisted pride and envy, would you bring conviction? Would you bring changed hearts there as well? Be glorified in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.